and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Morality is simply the attitude we adopt towards people we personally dislike. I'm Ian Woodworth, I'm joined by my co-host James Daly, and today we're celebrating our third anniversary. Woohoo! This is going to be a little bit different, uh, mainly because this isn't an actual play. I know, right? I had life happen and wasn't able to get on the ball in time to actually schedule it for our anniversary <laughs> but we do have a game in planning yes actually you know what our third anniversary did kind of sneak up on us we've actually been kind of busy we are writing and we've hinted at it once or twice we are writing our one shot we have it mostly polished at this point it'll be probably post but we'll be at robcon where we're actually going to be on a table so planning the convention getting kind of the bells and whistles kind of set up on this and you look at the calendar and like wow it's been three years already right yeah and you know i think that going to the bi-weekly release schedule really affected that a lot because it's not 50 episodes like we have in the past. So yeah, we are going to be having an actual play for our anniversary. It's just going to be a little bit delayed. We are actually going to be doing a collaboration. Yes. With the crew over at Of Mice and Men and Monsters. One of their cast members is currently out on maternity leave. And so we are going to be... (laughs) Playing a game with the other three of them, so... Excellent. Congratulations to Kimmy. If the baby's already here, I don't know if it is yet or not. Uh, it might be by the time this comes out, but... New level one characters. New level one characters. Roll for stats. Uh. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's been a really great past three years. I think we're still going strong. We have a lot of stuff we are wanting to work on. Again... We started our podcast uh, where a lot of podcasts started during COVID, and as we've picked back up with life, that is one of the reasons why we did switch to a bi-weekly, just because, you know, our jobs and lives and schools and things we have to get to. This said, for my end, I am still super enjoying this. Ian seems to be as well. So yeah, we have lots of stuff we want to cover. There's still a lot out there. There's the hints and whispers of, you know, D&D 5.5, D&D 1, whatever they want to hint out. Lots of new games being developed by developers that we'd love having on bringing in. They're hinting at a Planescape book, which we might want to go and revisit some of our Planeswalk. I don't think we're going to do a full Modron walk again, but we might want to revisit some of our favorite planes. They're doing more than hinting. It's the next book. It is the next book. Exactly. I have gone and specifically pre-ordered that one. I need Uh, to still. I have some school supplies I have to purchase first, but that is high on my stuff to buy list. Right. So, yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of stuff. Like I said, we have our one shot that's just about polished. And I think hopefully we should be able to produce that and put that out here fairly soon. We have some other ideas of possibly getting some of our monster mashup monsters into a monster manual, as well as some other smaller books that we can put out for some of the other things we've covered in the past as well. Yeah, we're hoping that we can start really polishing our material. I'd really like to get the Dragoon and the Spellblade a little more put together, maybe commission some artwork for it. Those sorts of things, get them up on the store so that we can sell those. We had somebody comment forever ago, and I apologize for not reading this podcast rating and review. Uh, Somebody actually posted a review saying that the only thing they didn't like about our Dragoon was the fact that it wasn't in D&D Beyond. And that I find that some pretty high praise. And that is something that... I intended to look into, and then life happened. (laughs) So that is something that we still may 
end up doing, especially now that all of the chaos surrounding the OGL and all of that nonsense has mostly filtered out. Yeah, it was a fairly tumultuous first year, and and we weren't sure which direction things were going for a bit this past beginning of the year. Yeah, it has been a bit up and down, but I think we have stabilized a bit. Yes. And I feel good with what we've got. But yes, the one shot that James has mentioned, it is the one shot that we are going to be playing with the crew from Oh Man Ma'am. So we're really excited to get to that. We're really excited to present that. I think we're going to have a whole lot of fun playing it. Oh yeah, this is going to be good times. I thoroughly enjoy their show, and so I think that we have an energy that will play well with them. I think especially, James, you and Aaron (laughs) are going to really hit it off. Nice. Uh, Or I could be completely wrong. Who knows? Who knows? Um, It's a roll of the dice. And like James said, we've got it mostly fleshed out. A couple little tweaks left. I'm going to be starting on... Uh, layout for it here pretty soon so that way hopefully by the time the episode with the one shot comes out we'll have the module available for sale in our itch store excellent in other news our website is finally almost done huzzah i've been poking the friend of ours who has been building it and she has gotten back onto it and is mostly functional it's almost ready for live. There's a couple things that I have to review and give the okay for. But yeah, I'm excited about that too. So Yeah, we've, we've had a lot going on behind the scenes. And for all of our listeners, if you've been with us for the full three years, thank you. If you're just joining us now and you, this is like your first or second podcast hopping in, just as much, thank you. It's been a wonderful journey. We enjoy doing this very much. And we hope you will continue to join us in the future because there is a lot more to bring. We still haven't finished all the bathtub hooch, so there's a lot of homebrew left. There are a lot of spoons left to lick. That is, <laughs> that is true. Um, so we did have a topic that we were going to talk about today, aside from just... Happy gen- anniversary. Happy anniversary general <laughs> update stuff. I've been wanting for a while to talk about alignment. Alignment is one of those topics that, especially lately, seems to have gotten to be a very hot-button topic. And so I just wanted to talk about it a little bit, maybe a little free-flow sort of thing. We don't really have any outline planned. Right. Just how we view alignment, how we use alignment, what the different alignments mean to us and such. Maybe talk a little bit about how other games have done alignment systems that are not D&D alignment, and those sorts of things. And that is one of the big problems with D&D alignment was it was, for the time, a very good system. And it has become so well known and so popular that it will be almost impossible to fully separate D&D from, you know, the lawful good, lawful evil, you know, chaotic good, chaotic neutral, whatever, alignment system. I think, and again, the way the culture was and what was common at the time to say this whole group has this alignment for like an entire race of critters or creatures, that, as we see in culture today, is problematic. That said, I think this still can apply to sects, sects, S-E-C-T, not not the other one, and groups. Like if you have a cult of demon-worshipping whatevers, you know, humans, bugbears, myconoids, whatever they are, yeah, they're probably going to be evil because they're based off an evil god. So that makes sense. But to say just because you are of a species or a race, you're evil, that is very problematic. Right, yeah. And there's a lot, 
especially in early D&D, because it was very mechanical early on. Things like clerics had to maintain a certain alignment in order to cast their spells. Exactly. You know, there are certain spells that if you weren't the right alignment, you just couldn't cast them. Yeah. Like, if you were lawful good, you couldn't cast Inflict Wounds. Exactly. I think if you were an evil character, you couldn't cast Cure Wounds. You could not. So there were a lot of things there. And it's a very prominent example of an alignment requirement was the early paladin. Yes. Um, Paladins had to be lawful good. If they ever strayed away from law and goodness, they became a fighter. Right. They lost all of their divine abilities. I like that in 5th edition, they're no longer tied to that concept of lawful goodness, that paladins are instead now tied to an ideal, tied to an oath, and that that oath determines how they act rather than, you know, making some arbitrary alignment system force them into acting a certain way because it makes it possible for paladins that are not affiliated with... Paylor? <laughs> it, it basically allows you to have... It opens up the opportunities for the origins of power for yes. paladins because now if they are a paladin of a chaotic good god right it doesn't make any sense for them to be lawful good if their god is chaotic good right no that you that know? makes total sense or you know going for the anti-paladin thing having a lawful evil paladin who is serving say asmodeus that would make a whole lot of sense. By then, but in older editions, they would be black guards or death knights at that right, point. Right, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, even then, you know, the term black guard or the term death knight doesn't always fit. No, with, it really doesn't. With the concept of what they're happening to be. Right. I mean, you have, just say, the Oath of the Ancients. Okay. Just to pull out one 5th edition example. Oath of the Ancients are very nature-based. Yeah. So, they're going to be... More in the lines of neutrality. Yeah. They're not concerned so much with law and chaos. There are going to be certain aspects of law that they are going to adhere to. You know, the natural order and such. They're going to be a druid in. Yes, they're going <laughs> that's exactly what it is. It's a druid-flavored paladin rather yes. than a cleric-flavored paladin. But it doesn't make sense for that character necessarily to be lawful good. Because... Nature doesn't care about good and evil. No. Nature doesn't care so much about law and chaos. A little little more... A little more to law, I would a say. A little more to law, but yeah. not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. No, okay. Nature is largely based on neutrality. Yes. And so forcing a paladin who is following that code, that creed, to try and be lawful good just doesn't work. And again, my other issue with alignment within D&D was several fold. One, it was very, very difficult to track how much has your alignment shifted? Will this action shift? I think the best example I've seen of that being tracked was probably the old school Neverwinter Nights, which you can still get on Steam. It's actually, it's an older game, but it's a fun game. And that tracked your alignment fairly well. But you would almost need a computer system to track that because each quest you did, or if you accepted a quest or not a quest, or if you killed a person versus dialogue versus diplomacy, all affected your alignment each in different ways. And that would be a whole book of tables on its own. My other thing is certain, I want to say, not archaic spells, but certain 
spells that tie back to the original editions of D&D and second edition, like protection from alignment or detect alignment, are almost unusable anymore because even if you play a character, most games I sit at, if they say, hey, my character's, you know, chaotic good, my character's lawful evil, whatever, that's more of a flavoring for roleplay than any kind of actual semblance of mechanics within the game. I think it is a good point for roleplay, but like I said, within the actual like dice rolling mechanics of the game, it's almost unusable. Right. I think we need to take a minute and step back here and define what we're talking about. Okay. What do we mean by law and chaos? What do we mean by good and evil? So in early D&D, the alignment system was heavily, heavily influenced by a bunch of white boomer Christians in the Midwest. That'll happen. Gary Gygax, I know, was a Jehovah's Witness. I don't know about... I was unaware of that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm unaware of a lot of the other stuff. I was actually just listening to the most recent episode of Between Two Cairns with uh, Yochai Gall and Brad Kerr, and the module that they reviewed was the very first Dragonlance module. Oh, oh. And I didn't realize that the Hickmans were Mormons or Latter-day Saints. Okay. And so they're talking about how a lot of LDS mythology, ideology, made it into the world building of Kryn. I could kind of see that, I suppose. I mean, I would have to look at it, but yeah, I could kind of see that. And talking about the different aspects of that. And that was very interesting. I highly recommend going and listening to that one. So let's start with good and evil. Okay. So goodness in a D&D context, tends to fall in the Christian ideal of goodness. Generally. Um, generally speaking, this sort of selfless charity, almost. Yeah, I would say even to step back from the Christian aspect of it, but general altruism. Yes. Yes. Selflessness. Right, yeah. yeah. Altruism is a very good word to use for that. And evil, by the opposite side would be selfishness. It would be callousness. It would be disregard for others. Right. So at this point, it becomes, would you do something to benefit yourself at the cost of others? If your answer is yes, you're going to lean more to the evil side. And if you would answer no, if you would answer that you would instead do something at benefit to others at cost to yourself, that would skew you towards good. good. And then if you're in the Well, it depends category. You're neutral. You're neutral. Congratulations. (laughs) Huzzah. But the addition of law and chaos to this as a perpendicular axis to this really allows for a lot of nuance. It really does. Because now, not only are you talking about altruism versus selfishness, but you're also talking about whether or not you have a guiding principle. Right. Law means to me... That you have a code, that you have ethics, that you have a series of beliefs that you will always follow this code regardless of what happens to you. Right. Um, Whether they be societal laws or personal laws or maybe the code of an abbey or a sect or another group, not necessarily a government. But if you hold to those laws and rules, then you are lawful. Yes. So a lot of monastic traditions would fall into law. Yes. One of my favorite characters that I like to bring up, that I like to point this out with, based off of my definitions, Rorschach 
from the Watchmen, at least from the movies, because I haven't finished reading the graphic <laughs> novel, Rorschach is a lawful neutral character. Okay. He has a very strong code of ethics. Yes. He has a very strong guiding principle where either you are a criminal or you are a victim. If you are a victim, I will protect you. If you are a criminal, it is open season. That's fair. And again, a very good example of this, you know, also aside from Rorschach, Batman. Batman might go outside the bounds of Gotham law, but he has his own personal code and morality that he holds very strictly too. Absolutely. So Batman, again, depending on if you want to cast his morality either via Gotham law, he could be neutral, but he does hold that law. So I would say Batman leans more lawful good. Yeah, I can see that. Versus something like Tony Stark, who generally does good stuff, but he's going to do what Tony Stark does. And Iron Man does what Iron Man do, and it's just whatever's beneficial and most feasible and practical at that moment. Right. Chaotic. And, and he tends to... A lot of the things that he does are societal goods by accident. Yeah. Or by coincidence. Yes. Um, he is doing the thing that he wants to do, the thing that will benefit him. And if it also benefits society, great. Hey, great great yeah. bonus. Yeah. So, yeah, I would... I could see that. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the alignment charts whenever you plot out your different fictional characters, you know, characters like Robin Hood fall into the chaotic good yes. category because, well, at least based on, you know, older interpretations, right? he wouldn't fall into chaotic good under my interpretations. But so we've mentioned law chaos. Chaos is impulsiveness. It is acting based on what you believe is right in the moment. It's not necessarily being bound to a code of ethics it is being morally flexible. <laughs> As I, I do have the shirt that says this, yes, I, I do embrace my chaos from time to time. That said, I would argue that even through that, Robin Hood, as we know from folklore and stories, still adopts a lot of that flexibility. I would still put Robin Hood as a chaotic good character. Even within his Band of the Merry Men, the rules were kind of a loose guideline. A better example of chaotic good as the rules are a loose guideline would be Jack Sparrow. Yeah. Yeah. Jack Sparrow is chaotic neutral, I would say. Ooh. Because, <sighs> because his actions are not necessarily for the greater good. He, a lot of his actions are very selfish. A lot of his actions are very selfish. And I they fall into the same sort of thing that we're talking about with Tony Stark, that a lot of his actions coincidentally happen to be for the greater good. I will grant you that. Now, the thing that makes me want to put Jack Sparrow with chaotic good, and unfortunately it is a deleted scene, but it explains how Jack Sparrow got his pirate mark. And that was because he had a load of cargo, quote, quote, the cargo were, uh, who was running a slave ship and he let the slaves free. And that was his debate with the person from the West Indies is he's saying people aren't cargo. You know, that is definitely a good action, unquestionably. And that kind of thing where that came at a heavy personal cost to him, he got a pirate's mark for it. But because he felt that people are not cargo, because they're not. With that, that to me puts him in the chaotic good. Right. I can see that. But, you know, again, that's... A single action. <laughs> <laughs> that is a... I want to say that it's not canonical okay necessarily fair enough because it that, is a deleted scene it is a deleted <laughs> scene and i am very familiar with that because that particular fan theory fan service has been floating around the internet for years now yeah. but i would almost see that as that would almost be a good instance of alignment shift yes uh, also very true yes um where he would have been chaotic good 
this thing happened to him, this traumatic major life event happens. And following that, he starts looking out for himself more. Oh, great. Yes. And okay. so so his alignment would shift from chaotic good to chaotic neutral. Okay. And that is fair. That um, No, I, I like that. Because he's not evil. No, he's not. Absolutely not. He does not impart that selfishness that is inherent in evil. But based on his actions in the films, at least the first three films, because I stopped watching after that. There is a casual disregard for others. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, any societal good that he happens to do tends to be coincidental. Okay. No, that, that is fair. Um, he generally has an ulterior motive whenever something like that happens. That is fair. No, you, you do make a very fair point. Uh, but yeah, so that's generally where I go. Yeah, no, I can't see that. Now, an example of an evil character. I mean, the big ones are easy, generally. Like, obviously, like, do I want a god in the conversation? I really don't want a god in the conversation. But Hitler is a perfect example of lawful evil. He followed the set laws set by the government. And he wrote a lot of them, but he was evil. He did stuff for his own personal power and gain and everyone else be damned. And it is the prime example. Darth Vader, again, along those same lines, without having to go to win the conversation, we can edit that bit out if we want. But Darth Vader, again, very much following the law. And he, within his own right, had his own personal code, even up to the end of Revenge of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi, Jedi, yes. He followed his own personal code, even up to the end of that film. So definitely lawful. Generally, everything was for his own benefit. So very evil. Definitely to the cost of others. Right. And yet, that is something that is pretty uniform. That, you know, dictators, despots, they tend to fall into that lawful evil category. Because they're using this code, they're using these rules as a weapon. Yes. As a tool to subdue and subjugate the people under them to establish their power. Yes. Whereas, see here, like a lawful good individual, that would be somebody like Mother Teresa. Yeah. I mean, there were some things that came out following her death, talking about different aspects of just the general heinous things that were going on in the Catholic Church at that time. And I don't recall if she was specifically mentioned as being a facilitator in that or if she was just critiqued for not speaking out about it right but as a general rule i mean mother Teresa was a catholic nun so she was very strict in following you know catholic doctrine but she also she was more christian than most christians fair enough she, uh, she did she a lot did a good job of practicing what she preached she did a lot of charity work she did a lot for a great many underprivileged people often at expense and threat to herself now again she was a person she was human we are all flawed but i personally believe with this that she tried to do her best could she have done better in things almost definitely we all can but i think overall she really tried and so yeah yeah so going through real quick chaotic evil i find voldemort to be a good example of chaotic evil He will follow laws and a personal code as long as they are pragmatic. And as soon as as they are not convenient, well, it's not even convenient as long as it works because he would take some steps that I would consider not convenient. You know, being dead for six or seven years so you can come back, you know, and do whatever isn't necessarily convenient. True. But it's pragmatic. It is going to work. So it's not I'm going to do whatever I want at the moment. There is some forethought. There is planning. There is some structure involved and you're still doing stuff 
or your own game long term. Right. I find that Chaotic Evil is the hardest one of these to really wrap your head around and to really utilize well. Especially if you're talking about a player character. Let's see, this is why Ian and I play different characters. (laughs) Um, Because it is difficult for a Chaotic Evil character to play well with others. Chaotic Evil, yes. If you're running an evil campaign, Lawful Evil, Neutral Evil... Both of those can work well in a party with other people. Right. A chaotic evil character that is being played as truly chaotic evil. Yes. They are going to be difficult to play in a group. Yes, absolutely. Um, because they are going to actively disregard what is best for, for the group. The group. Right. They are not going to take into account if I do this, it is going to be good for me, but all of my allies are going to suffer for it, and so it may not be good for me in the long term. term. But doing something else might put me at a little bit more risk, but lead to a higher chance of the group succeeding. Yeah. I will go back and say, when I was talking Voldemort, I meant neutral evil. I don't know if I said chaotic. You did say chaotic. I said to say, I meant neutral, yes. Okay. And so, yeah, for me, neutral evil is either chaotic evil, yes, and again, that difference with the two is I, if you're playing a neutral evil character, you can use your party because you are probably going to see your party as implements of your will. Absolutely. And so you're not going to want to just randomly discard them because they are still able to be used for your benefit. Yeah, where... you, you want to keep them close, keep them useful as yes. long as they are useful, and then you will discard them Whenever they have outlived their purpose. Right. And so going back, Voldemort is my example of a neutral evil character, not okay. a chaotic evil. That makes a bit more sense. Yes. Sorry, um, I misspoke. <laughs> yeah. And continuing on, chaotic evil is very difficult to do. Most of the instances that you see of chaotic evil in literature, in different forms of media, it's the egomaniac that wants to destroy the world. Yeah. I mean, your Um, chaotic evil is almost always going to be your BBEG. Because as Ian said, it is very difficult party dynamic wise to have a chaotic evil character, much less multiple chaotic evil characters. And I mean, it's going to be very difficult to have a big, big bad that is chaotic evil. Because in order to become a high level villain, that would require a certain amount of organization, if you will, in most cases. It's very hard to have a single entity able to be a world-threatening event by themselves. Yes. Not impossible. Most of the instances that you have where that is the case, they feel very contrived. They feel very single-faceted. They are going to be a supernatural being almost always. Yes. And, you know, it's something that just doesn't really work well in most literature, in most media, it's uninspiring. Yeah, I can see that. Now, again, for your big, yeah. So, I mean, even among D&D, when you start dealing with your devils, your devils are lawful evil. You have your demons, which are chaotic evil. But, like I said, they tend to be more in a just kind of a horde, kind of each scrambling amongst each other and tearing each other down at the same time. So they are less a entity to fight against and more of an environmental danger almost. Right. And that runs into the mob mentality thing where they are acting at the whim of the more powerful demon because the demon is more powerful and it behooves them. It is a self-preservation tactic to obey this demon so that they don't get squished. Yeah. Because if a demon is able to 
be clever enough and patient enough and gain enough power, they are able to advance to a higher level and they start to accrue the power. It is a very selfish, self-preservation sort of methodology that really drives demons in D&D. I get that. Now, for our fun but difficult-to-play characters, I find the neutral ones a bit harder to play, particularly true neutral. I think we'll wrap up with true neutral. Lawful neutral, Judge Dredd is the prime example I've always used for this one. The law is the law. It doesn't matter if someone benefits or is hurt by it. It is what the code is, and that is the end-all, be-all of everything. Right. My longtime character... Oscar Stoneburner, my cleric of tear, yes. he is lawful neutral. And that just works for me. Yeah. I mean, he has his code of ethics. He follows that code of ethics. He doesn't care who gets hurt in the process. It's like, this is my code. This is what I'm going to do. I might suffer for this, but this is what I have to follow. Right. And those can be really, I mean, depending on how you're going to play as a character, depending on how you bring this up, if you're going to play the quote-unquote Judge Dredd character like that, you can come off kind of cold and it can be hard to incorporate into a party. If you say, hey, this is my... And you kind of flesh that out or there's a reason behind why you hold to that code so hard, that can be a very interesting and a very vibrant character. And so if you're going to play this lawful neutral character, you need a reason for them to hold to this code so steadfastly, it can't just be they're a walking automaton. Unless you're playing a walking automaton and then go for it. Yeah. And, you know, my cleric having a charisma of six. <laughs> rolls into that. You're really, well. really rolls into that. So <laughs> he's mostly, I mean, we call him short, angry God man. Uh, <laughs> because that's just the vibe that he throws off. Is, right. You know, he's just sort of gruff and doesn't want to interact with people. I mean, you will stand in the background and let all of the other people with all of the talkie talk do the talkie talk and just, you know, sits back and waits until... Smashy smash. Time to smash, yeah. <laughs> I forgot to mention, he is a war cleric, so... Yes. He uses his spell slots to smite his foes. If you want healing, you should have bought a potion of healing. Exactly. <laughs> the other one, obviously, uh, that, that gets played a lot because it can be fun, again, Try not to do this at the detriment of the party, but chaotic neutral. Yeah, a lot of people play chaotic neutral just so they can be chaotic asshole. Yeah. Yeah, don't do that. No. Chaotic neutral, you're going to probably be flippant. You're not going to settle to a code. If you do something good, yeah. If you do something bad, oh well. Again, I find Harley Quinn to be a decent example of chaotic neutral. Yeah, I can see that. She, she kind of has a little bit of her own personal code left, but really it's living in the moment. And again, living in the moment, you don't have to be a dick at the table to live in the moment. You can do some crazy fun stuff just because you can do good stuff because nobody expects you to do something good and it'll throw everybody off just as much as you could do something terrible to confuse your enemies and throw everybody off. You can go both ways with this really easily. This is probably one of the easier alignments to play. But again, playing it and not alienating your party is the trick. I mean, if you want a character that's easy to play without alienating your party... Neutral good is the way to go. Yeah, probably. You just do the right thing all the time. But what really is the right thing? Well, see, <laughs> that's why you're neutral. Yes. <laughs> you know, because the right thing isn't always the same thing every time. Right. And so that's where you get into that. But And I want to specify with Harley Quinn that we're talking about Joker minion Harley Quinn as chaotic neutral. Because the new anti-hero Harley Quinn... Is more chaotic, chaotic good. good. Yeah. 
For me, uh, moving on, the hardest character alignment to play is true neutral. For me to truly be true neutral, I think apathy is a very hard thing to fight within a character because your character is not driven or propelled by any amount of selfishness nor altruism to do good. They don't follow a code, but they don't not follow a code. So it's a, why am I here? And this is why I personally have a very hard time playing a truly neutral character. Right. True neutral does get that rap a lot. I would say that most people are true neutral. Okay. Most people try to do good. Occasionally they do bad when they think they can get away with it. Most people will not risk life and limb to do something altruistic for someone else. Fair. Most people are driven by a sense of self-preservation. They will help other people when it does not impose a substantial risk to themselves. Okay. And so I would say that most people in the world fall into true neutral. They will definitely be skewed towards certain alignments. But I think that that's one of the things is that, you know, whenever you're dealing with these labels, you end up dealing in absolutes and you don't really have that wiggle room. Yeah, I can get that. And you do make a fair point. And again, too, me personally, I tend to have my things. I do have a a small bit of autism that runs into things. So I do have a bit of a blinder when it comes to emotional response on things. So like I said, enacting true neutral for me would be challenged. But you do make a fair point that there is that wiggle room. Because again, it's not a single point, but it's generally a range, which is fair. Yeah, and that also goes into your critique of the whole system earlier where you're talking about how it's difficult to adjudicate you know is this a good act is this a lawful act right how good or lawful is it and how to try and determine whether or not an act is going to skew your alignment so yeah generally like i said this is the and it is a fairly well built and stable form of alignment that we discussed. These are all the D&D alignments. I think two other really strong alignment systems that we come across is the humanity system from White Wolf with Vampires the Masquerade, and then the karma system that you find in Fallout, both. Right, yeah. I think we should talk about the karma system first, because that's the one that I'm more familiar with. Okay. I did some reading up on the humanity and all of that. Apparently, there's a new mechanic for humanity in VTM 5e. Okay which we can touch on in a little bit, but starting off with karma. Karma was a system that your reputation shifted based on your actions within a community. Yeah. I didn't play enough of Fallout 1, 2, and Tactics in order to tell if your karma was split up across different factions or if you just had one karma. If I recall correctly, in 1, it was worldwide. I believe 2 was as well. But working with certain factions and benefiting like the slaver groups would lower your karma everywhere because right. then you associated if you associated with the super mutants, you, you kind of went down that way. If you went and murder hobo a whole town, you'd get to a next town and they would be less than welcoming. Right. And that was carried into Fallout 3, yes. which was the first Fallout that I played. But in New Vegas, they split it up to where you ended up having reputations with each individual faction and so doing something that would give you good karma with one faction might 
hurt your karma with another faction. And I like this. This does leave for a bit of accounting and bookkeeping for the DM if you're going to play this way. But this does make the game much more dynamic, especially if you're going to have larger cities and factions within the cities, which 5e has tried to kind of bring up a bit more. Or if you're just homebrewing and you're going to have various settlements, then yeah, your players' reputations should follow them. I think this is an easier way to work because it is a single access versus a dual access. So it is easier to track. It is easier to follow. If your players are running through and killing everything in the wilds, and it doesn't matter if they're wild beasts or caravans or bandits, and they're just like this force of destruction, then when they come to a town, people should be kind of scared and probably barring the doors. Right. Inversely, if they're going through and they are helping people and they are, you know, local heroes, then those gates should be thrown wide open and a feast prepared for them as they show up because all their problems are solved. Right. And we can play into a little bit of Skyrim for this one, where in order for your reputation to change, somebody has to be left who knows that you did it. Yeah, this is fair. (laughs) So like... One of the things you can do in Skyrim is if you end up getting a bounty because somebody witnessed you, if there's no witnesses, your bounty goes away. I mean, I mean if, if there are no witnesses, that's still stealth, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, warrior definition is stealth, kill everything that moves. It's exactly. But yeah, so that is something that can be, I think, fairly easily used. Yes. Where basically you just have like a slider bar. Yeah. For the different factions that you have in your game. And you you as the DM know how these factions interact with each other. Right. And you know that if they do this quest for this person who is part of faction A. No. Faction A and faction B are working together in this particular area. So you're going to get a good bit of reputation from faction A. Because you're working directly with one of their representatives. You get a little bit of positive from faction B because you are also furthering their goals even if you're not working with them. Right. Say faction C is working in opposition to faction A, you're going to lose reputation with them. Right. And so they're going to be less inclined to work with you. Right. And this does make an easier way for the DM to track. You could have a slider bar, just even a, a little tally mark next to your player's name if you're running like behind a DM screen. Again, this is relatively easy to track. Yeah. And if you wanted to make it simpler you would run it as party reputation rather than individual characters yes and then what you do is you just have the different factions written out and every time they do something that would benefit a faction you put a little plus sign next to it if they do something detrimental you put a little minus sign next to it at the end of the night you tally up your pluses and minuses and shift accordingly done and done yeah, so like I said, if you're running that, that is a really simple way. Going through, now again, the humanity bar or the humanity alignment for vampires. The path. Yeah. Path, yeah. Is kind of specific to Vampires the Masquerade, though you could use this in a lot of other homebrew type games. And this is how far into your vampirism you've descended or if you are, you know, becoming like, if you're dealing with lycanthropy, this would be actually a good way to deal with lycanthropy and something like 5e or another tabletop game or some form of madness if you're doing Call of Cthulhu. And the more you give into this, the further from your base human, your initial point, you drift and the further you drift away, the harder it is to pull yourself back. Right. The path of humanity is a determination of where you are in your struggle with the beast. Right. The beast being your vampirism. 
and how well you can resist the urges to just become a feral blood-sucking monster. Right. It literally is the beast within. So again, it comes to like, are you prone to bloodlust? Are you prone to fits of rage? Are you prone to look at your compatriots and the people around you as lesser beings because they are not, you know, you basically. And so this can be, as you drift further and further off, you'll become more and more isolated and this will affect your gameplay and actions if you're role-playing. And the way that it's set up with the various tracks, it's on a scale of one to 10 and each layer on that track mentions an action that if you perform an action that would violate this rule or any of the rules under it, you are at risk of losing humanity. Right. And as you continue on, the whole aspect, the whole setting of Vampire the Masquerade and of, you know, World of Darkness in general is this slow decline, this slow loss of humanity, this slow tragic loss of humanity. And so as you descend further down it becomes easier to live with the things that you're doing Doing, right so a good uh, and again not well i mean it is a good example but vampire the masquerade and martin wolf a lot i don't know if it was an intentional but it entwined really well with the Anne rice novels and the movies that they came out and so if you've watched the initial interview with a vampire Lewis had a relatively high humanity score. He still felt the need to be around people. He empathized with them, things like that, where Lestat had a much lower. And then I forget what the name of one of the other covens in Europe. They had an extremely low humanity score where they just saw people as food. And so, again, it was that being able to relate with your surroundings and the loss of that. So as the people you know all die and pass, as society changes around you but you're still the same person you were two three four five hundred years ago and how you become more and more disconnected with society that is that loss of humanity absolutely yeah and that plays into how the mechanics for humanity and 5e work at least how i understand them because i haven't played vampire 5e this is based off of somebody explaining their interpretation Gotcha. On a forum. (laughs) So this is very, you know, third hand, I suppose. But basically, you have threshold actions at each rank of your humanity. If you are doing things that would violate whatever threshold action you have or below on this chart, then basically you get a counter. Yeah. And the way that they ran it is... However far away from 10 you are, that's how many counters you accrue before you have to roll against your humanity. Okay. And you have to roll, I think you have to roll above your current humanity with on the D10 roll, or you lose one point of humanity. Okay. And whether you succeed or fail, you clear all of your tokens after that roll. Okay. But what it does is it means that As you descend further and further, you become more okay with your actions. And so it takes more stuff to trigger a humanity roll. That makes sense. Because once you get to a certain point, you know, you're kind of depraved. Right. And so the little depravities, you know, 
you can live with those. You can go from because, a bandit to Caligula. <laughs> yeah. And as you descend further and further into it, you become more and more okay with greater and greater atrocities. Yeah. Now, I like this. And again, I do like aspects of this humanity system in vampires. And I would love to see something. And this would absolutely be a homebrew. This is absolutely something to bring up with your players, session zero or whatever. But I think two really awesome examples this could work with, as I brought up one, like Canthropy and D&D, you know, and how easy it is for them to keep their human form versus their bestial form. Or possibly the warlocks with their patrons and how far, you know, because when you start your initial pact with your patron, you are whatever your character is. And the more you interact with this patron or the more you do these wild things that your patron sends you out to do, you the, become... The more you draw on the power, power that the patron is giving you. Yeah, you become more and more like your patron. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I think that would be a really fun mechanic for some more experienced players, possibly. Okay, yeah. I like that aspect a lot. Because that gives you a mechanical tool to help the DM really incorporate the... Bond. The, yeah, the roleplay side of being a warlock. Yeah. Because I find that that doesn't happen a As, lot because it's hard to do. It can be hard to do. Yeah, I agree. So again, if you do want to roleplay that warlock, again, bringing up certain tasks... When I have a player that wants to be a warlock and they say, Okay, I'm I'm a warlock, I have this pact, I'm like, okay... What was your pact with your patron? What did they want specifically from you? And that way I can kind of figure out, okay, I have a fey pact warlock and they want me to increase wildlife and wild growth wherever they, so they're going to be holding back city productions. They are going to be planting wildflowers wherever they can. They are going to stop roads from being built through the forest, that kind of thing, because their patron wants to keep the wilds versus, you know, whatever else. If you had a celestial pact warlock, then, you know, they want you to fight evil forces that are encroaching the world. So whenever this person saw, you know, a demon or a devil or someone involved with those or a necromancer, then per their pact, they are going to be not required to fight, but there is going to be a heavy push for them to fight and counter that. They're going to have an obligation and yes. they will probably suffer punishment from their patron if they choose not, not to. to do it. Exactly. And that's another thing that, especially in 5e, a lot of DMs are hesitant to do is because it is a much more lenient system than it has been in the past. It's hard to just tell people, okay, these are the rules that you have to follow. Right. And that if you don't follow these rules, you're going to suffer for it. It makes the warlock basically the new paladin. It does. It really does. And I can see why a lot of people are hesitant to incorporate those sorts of requirements on their characters. But again, this does add so much to the role-playing side. And at the end of the day, D&D is a role-playing game. Right. All right. Well, I think we probably did pretty good on yeah, this one. I think we covered a bit of alignment. Again, we could probably come back and revisit this more because there's a lot more in depth. We did a pretty healthy skim of the surface, I think. But yeah. Again, happy three years. Happy three years. Here's for many, many more, we hope. Again, we've got some stuff coming up. We have things coming out. We are very excited. Again, thank you all for those that have been with us this whole trip. And thank you for those that have joined us recently and in between. We do appreciate you. We love discussing this stuff. We would love to hear back from you. Input you guys want to hear more of. Any ideas you might have that we could discuss. We love interacting with our listeners and our guests. Yeah. 
and uh, happy Tarasmus to oh, everybody. Yes, Tarasmus is coming up on Saturday. So thank you everyone for listening. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through the burning Hulk of, <laughs> I'm not calling it what they're throwing up on there. No. It's Twitter until it's in the ground. Yes. <laughs> at UCT homebrew. <laughs> we are also on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, and Mastodon at Undercommon Taste. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Undercommon Taste. That's where our write-ups go. That's where, if you want to help support the show financially, you can go and become a patron. We are also on itch, undercommontaste.itch.io. That's where you can find our liminal horror adventure beneath the lake and my solo RPG Forever Home. That's where our one-shot, once it's finished and ready for sale is going to be um and all patrons are going to get a free copy Huzzah. of it as a thank you for your patronage finally we are on discord you can find a link to the discord in our show notes we'd love for you to come over and chat with us it is probably the best way to get a hold of us if you don't want to use twitter probably yes again if this is your first time listening welcome if you've been with us forever again thank you we are on the podcaster of your choice, so you can find us there. And I do want to say, again, with the Planescapes coming up, we did do a full year of discussing the various planes, so that might be a good thing to go back and revisit. As always, please give us a rate and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. So stay safe, everyone. We'll see you in two weeks. And here's to another year. Happy gaming. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash davidsutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe. And we'll see you then.